Hey guys, welcome back to Recalibrate, a mindset podcast designed to help you break free from the old and press on to the new. The old is everything and anything that is keeping you from becoming everything that God has designed you to be. In these episodes, you will notice that I will incorporate psychology, theology, spirituality, and biology. If you are a subscriber to this podcast, I want to say thank you for your following. It really blesses me to know that you connect on a weekly basis to listen, to learn, and to grow. And if this is your first time connecting to this podcast, if someone told you about it or you just happen to stumble across it, I hope that you get more than you expect. And if that's the case, I would ask you to take a few minutes of your time after listening to this episode to rate this podcast with a five-star rating and to leave a positive, uplifting comment. And by all means, please, please, please share this podcast with friends and family. The following one-minute soundbite is a compilation of several different videos The language might be a little too harsh uh, for children, so if you are with children right now as you're listening to this podcast, I'd encourage you to either fast forward that minute or to listen to this podcast at a later time. You ain't got to do no, nothing, Uncle Phil. Hey, you know, ain't like I'm still five years old, you know? Ain't like I'm going to be sitting up every night asking my mom, when's daddy coming home, you know? Who needs him? Hey, he wasn't there to teach me how to shoot my first basket, but I learned, didn't I? Hey, I got pretty damn good at it, too, didn't I, yeah, Uncle Phil? Did. Got through my first day without him, right? Mm-hmm. I learned how to drive. I learned how to shave. I learned how to fight without him. I had 14 great birthdays without him. He never even sent me a damn card. When I was a girl, I hated myself. I thought I was broken that no one could or ever would love me. It's the only way a child can grow up when their father abandons them. Felicity. All I ever wanted to know was why. What was so wrong with me that you would leave? They did it all. No thanks to you because you weren't here. And I appreciate that, Fiona, but I'm here now. And Fiona belongs with me. He doesn't even know who you are. I'm his mother. You are my mother, too. I need him then and I don't need him now. Nah, you know what, Uncle Phil? I'm gonna get through college without him. I'm gonna get a great job without him. I'm gonna marry me a beautiful honey, and I'm having me a whole bunch of kids. I'm gonna be a better father than he ever was. And I sure as hell don't need him for that, because ain't a damn thing he could ever teach me about how to love my kids. How come he don't want me, man? like me much, do you, Mason? That's okay. I don't like me either. <laughs> think that's funny, huh? You think that's fucking funny? What's the matter? You feeling left out? <laughs> Clean it up. Clean it up. So what was the common thread running through all of these different life experiences? Well, they all involved children or teenagers, and of course, an adverse or traumatic experience. For some of you listening to that clip, you had 
you had some flashbacks of your own childhood, childhood memories or your teenage years, traumatic experiences that you had to endure in your home, the dysfunction of your family. A small percentage of you had no clue since you grew up in a somewhat functional home in which everyone was respected and loved equally. Now, please understand there is no picture-perfect home. What you see on Facebook 75% of the time is a farce. It is fake. It is not realistic. Sometimes we see these beautiful, you know, family portraits having this wonderful time, the time of their life. But deep down on the inside, there's hurt, there's pain, there's suffering, there's lots of dysfunction. However, they try to paint this picture to everyone around them. They, they try and send this message that we're okay, we're doing well, look at us, look at our smiles. But there's lots and lots of pain deep down on the inside. Actually, on March 31st, 2014, a story appeared on a website called Adobo Chronicles that claimed that the American Psychiatric Association had classified cellphitis, <laughs> cellphitis as a new mental disorder. According to the author, the organization had defined cellphitis as the obsessive, compulsive desire to take photos of oneself and post them on social media as a way, listen, as a way to make up for the lack of self-esteem and to fill a gap in intimacy. The same article also claimed that there are three levels of this disorder. Borderline, which means the person takes photos of oneself at least three times a day, but not posting them on social media. Acute, which is taking photos of oneself at least three times a day and posting each of the photos on social media. And chronic, the uncontrollable urge to take photos of oneself round the clock and posting the photos on social media more than six times a day. Yes, you heard it. More than six times a day. Oh, that's quite, <laughs> quite annoying. The selfie paradox is that nobody seems to like them, yet everyone has a reason to take them. Now, this episode is not about selfies, by the way. <laughs> it has nothing to do with selfies. I just want to make a point that oftentimes we are captivated by what we see on social media. We are impressed by the pictures that we view as we're scrolling down and looking at other people's lives. And we can become so self-critical. We look at our own lives and we start to compare. We start to judge. And we ask ourselves, why can't I? Why are they? Why can I have that? They look so happy. They look so perfect. Let me tell you once again, let me reiterate this. 75% of the people that you see out there posting on social media these happy-go-lucky pictures are actually, actually miserable on the inside. So posting pictures on social media have become a mood enhancer, a self-esteem boost for many, helping them cope with the gaps in their own lives. There is a certain level of dysfunction in every family, as I mentioned earlier. You can't escape it. I would challenge you right now to rate your own childhood experience on a scale of 1 to 10. How traumatic was it? How adverse was it? How dysfunctional was your life? And how has that affected you today? And some of you, some of you don't even realize how much that has affected you to this day. But deep down at a subconscious level, 
there is a conditioning, there is a programming that has been established, and you have carried on the trauma of yesterday, of yesteryears. You've carried that trauma over into your adult life, and now it's affecting you as a parent, as an employee, as a friend, and you've yet to realize that. You can't see it. And you recall saying to yourself or telling yourself, I will never be like my father. I will never be like my mother. They were terrible people. I will never repeat that story. I would never do that to my own children. And there are times when you catch yourself sounding just like them or doing just like them. And why is that? Because there is a conditioning within the mind that causes you to repeat the same story. It becomes your default mode. And so the question is, is there anything that I can do to break free from this mode of being? Is there anything that I can do to break the cycle? Yes, there is a lot that you can do. However, the first thing that you must do is become self-aware. Self-awareness is the ability to see yourself clearly and objectively through reflection and introspection. And as believers, I have quoted uh, this verse that was written by David long ago. Uh, Search my heart, O God, and put my thoughts to the test and show me if there is any iniquity within me. I've oftentimes suggested that as you go into uh, your time of prayer, your time of meditation, your time of devotion, that you would ask God to search your heart and to put your thoughts to the test. In other words, to basically scan your heart and your mind and expose all the crud that's in there. Now, please understand I'm not being judgmental or critical of you. All I'm saying is that there are things that have accumulated over time within you that were completely out of your control, but it's not until you find out what they are. It's not until you can define them that you will be able to defeat them. Carl Jung, the psychoanalyst, said, until you make the unconscious conscious, it will rule your life and you will call it your fate, your destiny. You see, if you don't deal with it, it will overtake you and control you and define your final destination. I've been an educator for 26 years now, and I've been privileged to work with uh, children from the elementary grade levels all the way through the freshmen in college. I have taught different subjects, but uh, I've worked with thousands, thousands of children over the past 26 years. And during these past 10 years, I've encountered a large number of parents who have come to me and explained that their children have been diagnosed with uh, ADD, Attention Deficit Disorder, ADHD, Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, ODD. Oppositional Defiant Disorder, PTSD, Post Traumatic Stress Disorder, and Anxiety Disorders. And so they call me as a counselor, as a psychologist, and they say, Hey, could you talk to my kid? He needs help. Something's not right. They're not focusing at school, or they're moody or depressed, or they're always anxious, or they're afraid. Could you work with them? Could you help them? And the first thing that I say is, Of course, but I first need to work with you. Because 80% of the time, you are the problem. And their immediate reaction is to say, uh, no, 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 I don't need help. You see, I'm okay. Uh, no, you're not. You, my friend, you are also struggling 
with the programming of your childhood and those traumas, and you are now passing those on, those traits, you're passing them on to your own children. Now, let me share with you my observations. As I've dealt with these children during the past 10 years, especially the past 10 years, I've noticed that the vast majority of them, if I were to give you a percentage, I would tell you that anywhere between 70 to 80% of the children that have been diagnosed by pediatricians, that have been referred to psychiatrists, that have been placed on medication to help them cope with their anxieties, with their mood swings, with their attention deficits. And the medication turns them into different people. It robs them from their personality. It robs them from their joy. It just it zaps it all out of them. It's a sad thing to see. And the, the truth of the matter is that these kids, they have no need for medication. They have emotional gaps. They have been hurt. There are wounds within them that need to be healed. And there is no necessary need for medication. There's a need to heal the family unit. This past weekend, I was uh, privileged and honored to speak to a group of educators at a local university. My topic was uh, childhood mental health. I focused on adverse childhood experiences, also known as ACEs. Now, this originated in a groundbreaking study conducted in 1995 by the Centers for Disease Control and the Kaiser Permanente Healthcare Organization in California. In that study, ACEs, or Adverse Childhood Experiences, referred to three specific kinds of adversity children face in their home environment. Various forms of physical and emotional abuse, neglect, and household dysfunction. The key findings of dozens of studies using the original ACEs data are, number one, that ACEs are quite common, even among a middle-class population. More than two-thirds of the population report experiencing one ACE, and nearly a quarter have experienced three or more. Number two is that there is a powerful, persistent correlation between the more ACEs experienced and the greater the chance of poor outcomes later in life, including dramatically increased risk of heart disease, diabetes, obesity, depression, substance abuse, smoking, poor academic achievement, time out of work, and early death. So you're telling me, Milton, that if I've been subjected to trauma, neglect, dysfunction in my home, that my chances of developing all these diseases increases? Yes. Yes, that's exactly what this study revealed. So in a nutshell, early childhood trauma, children who have been exposed to consistent traumatic experiences increase their likelihood of developing all sorts of diseases in adulthood. Let me explain the mind-body connection for a moment. Let me try and do this in the simplest of ways. Picture yourself hiking in the woods up in the mountains somewhere, and all of a sudden you hear some noise. You turn around and you notice a black bear, a huge black bear. What do you feel? I mean, think about it right now. What do you feel? And maybe you've never been exposed to a black bear in the woods up in the mountains. Perhaps you've been exposed to a chihuahua chasing you (laughs) down the street when you decided to go out for a power walk or you were on your bike or you were jogging. What did you feel? 
what did your body experience? Well, let me tell you, when you are in the woods hiking and you notice a black bear behind you who's getting ready to chase you, and you know, you understand that a black bear is faster than you are, that a black bear can climb a tree uh, quicker than you can. And, but what happens to the body? The body goes into three different states, one or the other. It either goes into fight, flight, or freeze mode. Fight, flight, or freeze. In other words, your heart begins to race, your hands begin to sweat, you get, you get tunnel vision, and you start looking for an escape. Your, your muscles tighten up. That's what occurs in the body as a reaction to what you're experiencing, that stressful, adverse, traumatic experience. And so why does this happen? Well, let me tell you, there is a hypothalamic reaction that occurs within the body. In other words, your hypothalamus will send a signal to the pituitary gland, the master gland, which in turn will uh, send a signal to the amygdala and the amygdala to the adrenal glands, which in turn will secrete high levels of cortisol and adrenaline into the bloodstream, causing this to happen in your body. What it does is it prepares you to fight the bear, to run away from the bear, or you simply freeze and you become the bear's lunch. Now, it's great that we're wired this way, that our bodies react in such a way to help us uh, fight off a predator or to defend ourselves from an assailant, from an attack. It, it's great that our bodies can prepare us for fight or flight mode. This is great. It, it's great that we can uh, react this way when we are in a forest, being chased by a bear. But let me tell you, what happens when you react this way, but there is no bear? What happens when a child goes into fight or flight mode or freeze mode when they're at home, when dad shows up or mom shows up and they know that they're going to be subjected to some form of abuse, neglect or trauma and their bodies go into fight, flight or freeze mode. That is not healthy for a child. It's not healthy for an adult either because... There are equal amounts of adults that experience this fight or flight mode when their spouses come home because they're exposed to trauma. They're exposed to abuse. Now, let me tell you, when adults especially, even children, but adults especially, I want to focus on that for just a moment, are exposed to traumatic experiences on a daily uh, basis and their cortisol is always peaking at its highest, there is a a susceptibility to develop uh, fatigue, irritability, headaches, migraines, intestinal problems such as constipation, bloating, or diarrhea, anxiety or depression, weight gain, increased blood pressure, low libido, erectile dysfunction, or problems with regular ovulation and menstrual periods, difficulty recovering from exercise, and poor sleep. That's just to name a few. There's a longer list, let me tell you. And so it affects adults as well as it affects children in the long haul. So once again, ACES stands for Adverse Childhood Experiences. And children who are subjected to traumatic adverse childhood experiences develop uh, certain traits and characteristics that mimic those of ADD, ADHD, ODD, anxiety, depression. The parents get a phone call from the teacher, or from the counselor at school saying that the child is not focused, 
They run a checklist. The child checks off for six out of 10 of the different items. They go to the pediatrician. The pediatrician places the child on Adderall, Concerta, Vyvanse, Ritalin, Stratera. Now listen, I understand that there are times when children need to be placed on medication because there is some sort of chemical imbalance in the brain. I understand that. But we're talking only about 25 to 30% of the population that is currently medicated. So what am I saying? What I'm saying is that the other 70% require some form of therapy, both individualized and as a family. If you recall what I said earlier, usually the problem is within the core, within the roots of the family. It starts with mom and dad. That's where the problem started. I raised 14 foster kids, 12 boys, two girls. One of the requirements by the state is that when you receive a child into your home, you have 24 hours to take them to the pediatrician to check them for communicable diseases. And after that, you have about 48 to 72 hours to take the child to a psychiatrist. And they are pretty much immediately placed on some form of medication, like the ones that I mentioned, because these kids usually come with behavioral issues. I mean, come on. They're coming from highly dysfunctional homes. They have been neglected and abused. Talk about ACEs, adverse childhood experiences. I mean, these kids have been exposed almost on a daily basis, and that is the reason that they were removed from their homes at midnight. I mean, it was a sad situation because these kids were pulled out of their homes when they were asleep, and they would come into our home when, they, when it was about you know one in the morning. And we would receive them and they would wake up to a new, a new reality and a new home, different people. The trauma increased. The trauma was greater. So upon taking them to the psychiatrist about 48 to 72 hours later, the doctors would insist on placing them on medication. You see, that's their job. And I hate to say this, but, and I know that there are some really good psychiatrists out there that are, that have the kids' best interest at heart, but there are some other ones out there that just want to pop pills in their mouths and uh, have them come back month to month to month. And they eventually become addicted to that medication and they do not develop the coping skills or the mechanisms to adopt a different mindset, translating into different behavior. So we would end up negotiating with the physician, with the psychiatrist. We would say, look, give us a month to work with these kids. If you don't see a change in their behavior, by all means, place them on medication, but give us 30 days to work with them. And the doctor would always ask, what are you going to do? What is your solution to the problem? I would say, well, it's what we call 777. They would give us this startled look, you know, a dumbfounded, confused look. What is 777? We would just say seven words of affirmation a day, seven I love you's a day, seven hugs a day. And they would laugh like we were dumb, like, like something was wrong with us. But you know what? It worked. It worked on 12 of the 14 kids. It worked. 30 days worth of affirmations, hugs, and love, and their whole mindset shifted. And as their mindset shifted, because there's a connection between the mind and the body, the body also produced a different outcome. So just a little side note, perhaps your children have not been exposed to adverse childhood experiences or they're not uh, being subjected to any of that, but perhaps they are 
experiencing something at school or elsewhere outside the home that you're totally unaware of and they lack peace. Perhaps their cortisol is always peaking or perhaps, you know, someone in the home, maybe mom or dad, maybe just one, you know, dad is, is the abuser. Dad is the angry one. And mom is the only one there that can stabilize the situation. Well, let me tell you that there's power in hugging your children. There's power. Now, of course, you don't have to wait for them to be uh, anxious or showing signs of, you know, depression to hug them. I mean, you should be hugging your children on a daily basis, multiple times. But here's what happens. We earlier, earlier, we talked about cortisol and how cortisol and adrenaline are secreted into the bloodstream when we are uh, going into fight or flight mode or freeze mode. Well, the opposite of cortisol, cortisol is known also as the stress hormone, okay? And in the stress hormone cortisol, when it's consistently secreted into the bloodstream in excessive amounts, you know, beyond what is normal, as I mentioned, it can lead to uh, migraines, uh, fibromyalgia, chronic arthritis, stomach cancer, colon cancer, diabetes, weight gain, etc. There are so many different byproducts of high levels of cortisol. So what is the opposite of cortisol? Oxytocin. Oxytocin is the love hormone. So yes, cortisol is a stress hormone. Oxytocin is the love hormone. Now let me give you an example. So when a baby's born, baby comes out the birth canal, baby comes out from a very peaceful, quiet, dark environment into an environment where there's noise, there's light, there's sound. The baby immediately goes into shock. And so the doctor encourages the, the new mother to hold the baby close to her chest. Uh, this is to establish a bond. But more than just a bond, what it's doing is it's causing the baby's cortisol to drop because the baby, believe it or not, at that age, as a newborn, is going into fight or flight mode. Uh, they tense up. You know, they become anxious. And so when the mother pulls the baby in close to the chest, the cortisol drops. And the oxytocin, that love hormone I talked about, it increases, it's secreted into the bloodstream. What does it do? It causes the body to feel an overall sense of wellness, an overall sense of peace. And so when dealing with children, and not only children, but even when dealing with adults who are going through a time of anxiety, who are showing signs of being exposed to traumatic experiences, simply pulling that person in and giving them a hug will reduce the levels of cortisol, increasing the levels of oxytocin, bringing an overall sense of wellness and peace on their body. It can completely change an individual in just a few seconds. There is an ACEs score sheet or scorecard with 10 different items. As I mentioned earlier, at least 60% of the population in the United States has been exposed to at least one ACE, at least one. However, eight out of every 100, about 12% of the population have been exposed to more than three or four, which puts them at risk of developing all the diseases that I had previously mentioned. So I'm going to read them to you. I want you to listen carefully and see if you can identify any of these ACEs as your own. 60% of you are going to say yes to at least one, but 12% of you are going to say yes to at least three or four of them. And if that is you, I would urge you to find uh, help, professional help, 
someone that can help you see whether or not those traumatic childhood experiences are still affecting you or if you've been able to overcome them. So here goes. Number one, before you were 18, did a parent or other adult in the household often or very often swear at you, insult you, put you down or humiliate you, or act in a way that made you afraid that you might be physically hurt? Number two, before you were 18, did a parent or other adult in the household often or very often push, grab, slap, or throw something at you, or ever hit you so hard that you had marks or were injured? Number three, before you were 18, did an adult or person at least five years older than you ever touch or fondle you, or have you touched their body in a sexual way, or attempt or actually have oral, anal, or vaginal intercourse with you? Number four, before you were 18, did you often or very often feel that no one in your family loved you, or thought you were important or special, or your family didn't look out for each other, feel close to each other, or support each other? Number five, before you were 18, did you often or very often feel that you didn't have enough to eat, had to wear dirty clothes, and have no one to protect you, or were your parents too drunk, or high, to take care of you, or to take you to the doctor if you needed it? Number six, before you were 18, were your parents ever separated or divorced? Number seven, before you were 18, was a parent often or very often pushed, grabbed, slapped, or had something thrown at him or her, or sometimes often or very often kicked, bitten, hit with a fist, or hit with something hard, or ever repeatedly hit over at least a few minutes, or threatened with a gun or knife by a domestic partner? Number eight, before you were 18, did you live with anyone who had a problem with alcohol or who used street drugs? Number nine, before you were 18, was a household member depressed or mentally ill, or did a household member attempt suicide? And number 10, before you were 18, did a household member go to prison? If you answered yes to at least three or more of these, can I say that I'm so sorry that you had to endure that as a child? that you were captive to your environment and you were unable to do anything about it, I'm sorry. I can't even imagine what you had to go through. If you feel like you're dealing with situations as an adult now that have stemmed from what you had to endure as a child, I would encourage you to find help. Don't just bottle it up on the inside because eventually, not only will it affect you on the inside, but it will also manifest itself on the outside in the form of your relationships, your employment, your social life. So do yourself a favor and seek help. Just as every individual family member is unique in a number of ways from other members, every family has some unique characteristics or traits that set it apart from other families while at the same time continuing to share a host of similar attributes and qualities. See, the Bible addresses the uniqueness of all of God's creation from the perspective of a shepherd boy turned king. His name was David. And David wrote in Psalm 139, 13 through 14, he said, you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. So regardless of how dysfunctional your family may be, regardless of how many aces you have endured, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. You are the apple of God's eye. 
you were knit together by his very own hands in your mother's womb. And before the creation of the earth, he already had a plan for your life. He knew you by name. The Bible says in Jeremiah 29, 11, I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. And even in the midst of these promises, in the midst of knowing that, or knowing who we are, we still face all kinds of trials, some more than others, especially those that are in dysfunctional families. Now, some of you may be asking yourself, what exactly defines dysfunction within a home? Well, let me tell you that there are eight dominant traits that dysfunctional families share. The first one is chaos. This is a home that is constantly experiencing drama and confusion. Reasoning and self-restraint have taken a backseat. The second one is control. This is keeping all the members in compliance with certain rules and ideologies. The third one is denial. This is when the family members fail to acknowledge or address something that's going on within the home. Lies are accepted as truth and inappropriate behavior is simply ignored. The fourth one is inconsistency. What was said one day is retracted the next. Expectations constantly change and commitments are easily broken. Number five is indifference. Emotional support of family members is blatantly lacking unless challenged by outsiders. See, children are valued for their devotion and contribution to the family system. Number six is instability. These are emotions that quickly fluctuate from happy to sad, pleased to angry. It's, it's kind of like a, a bipolar family. Changes constant and unforeseeable. This elevates the level of insecurity within the home. Number seven is shame. This is when the members serve as emotional punching bags for each other with shame being the most effective way of hurting, manipulating, and obtaining compliance from others. And the last, number eight, is unpredictability. This is keeping each other guessing. It's, it's everyone's long suit. Therefore, what is allowed one day is forbidden the next day. And what pleases someone today displeases them tomorrow. Children have three God-given inner needs. And these three God-given inner needs are not supplied for in dysfunctional homes. The first need is a need for love. To know that someone is unconditionally committed to our best interests. The Bible says in John 15, 12, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. The second need is a need for significance. This is to know that our lives have meaning and purpose. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 57, 12, I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. And the third God-given inner need is a need for security. This is to feel accepted and a sense of belonging. Proverbs 14.26 says, Whoever fears the Lord has a secure fortress, and for their children it will be a refuge. So the needs are love, significance, and security. Now, a dysfunctional home isn't always necessarily a place of abuse and neglect and, and using kids as a punching bag. Dysfunction can also be manifested through role reversal. 
children once did whatever they could to please their parents. They wanted to please mom and dad. That was their genuine uh, interest was to please them. However, today, parents will do whatever they can to please their children. You see, there is a role reversal. Parents don't want to be parents anymore. I mean, come on. I've been in education for 20 plus years. I've seen this. Parents, and I'm not specifically talking about every single parent. I'm saying some parents don't want to be parents. They want to be their son's bud, (laughs) their best buddy, their friend, their pal, their PlayStation partner. Come on. And moms, moms don't want to be the mother to the little girl or to the teenage uh, young lady. They want to be their BFFs. Let's be best friends forever. Let's be shopping partners. Let's have girls night out. Let's do stuff together. However, they don't want to take on the role of being a mother. There are specifically four different types of parents. We have the dependent parent, and that's the over-involved, possessive parent who is inconsistent and utilizes manipulative maneuvers to control children, along with additional forms of immature behavior to the detriment of other family members. Then you have the dictatorial parent. This is the over-controlling, inflexible parent who is performance-based and utilizes criticism to condemn children, along with the additional forms of oppressive behavior to the detriment of other family members. Then you have the doting parent. The doting parent is overprotective, indulgent, is lacking in boundaries, and utilizes rescuing uh, children, along with additional forms of seemingly helpful behavior to the detriment of other family members. And last but not least, we have the demanding parent. The demanding parent is over-directive, conformist, is overbearing, and utilizes guilt and shame to conform children along with additional forms of pressure-filled behavior. You see, all four of them are messed up. All four of them, the dependent, the dictatorial, the doting, and the demanding, they're messed up forms of parenting. And then you have the four different types of kids, the, the different types of children. You have the responsible child. This is the hero who tries to fix the family problems and helps create a positive family image with noteworthy achievement. I mean, this child receives positive attention but often develops perfectionistic, compulsive behaviors. Then you have the rebellious child. He's the scapegoat. And the scapegoat draws focus away from the family problems and onto their own personal problems by, by engaging in rebellious, uncontrollable behavior. This child consumes time lots of time and energy from the family members and often develops self-destructive life patterns. Well, I've seen this time and time again in children that develop this rebellious, this rebellious characteristic, this rebellious mindset. Usually this, this uh, is, comes from a combination of too many rules and a lack of relationship. And therefore you have a rebellious child. Then you have the reclusive child. This is also this one is also called the uh, the lost child. The lost child hopes that by ignoring family problems, the difficulties will disappear. This child avoids attention and would like to just fade into the woodwork. Reclusive children spend a lot of time alone and therefore are often lonely and withdrawn. They don't want to rock the boat. I've known I've known several of these as well, and what they do is they withdraw into their rooms, lock their doors, go online get into trouble, or simply read books. 
They just want to get away from all of the issues that are happening within the household. And lastly, you have the reveling child, which is also known as a mascot. This one in particular uses humor and antics to direct the focus away from family problems. This child is often hyperactive and usually seeks to be the center of attention. Did you hear what I said? Hyperactive? Does ADHD ring a bell? Yeah, yeah. There's no need for medication. This kid needs a stable, loving, secure environment. The Bible is very clear to parents. The Bible says, train up a child in the way that he should go so that when he is older, he won't depart from it. When, when the Word of God talks about training up a child in the way he or she should go, that way is not the way that you deem best for the child. We're talking about the way that God has already purposed for that child. Look, in all reality, you are just a caregiver for a time being of that child. Your responsibility is to train him up in God's way so that when he's older, he won't depart from it. They're his children. The Bible says that children are an inheritance to us. In other words, we have them for a short period of time. Remember, you've only got the first 11 years of their life to really impact their whole being, their mind, to solidify their worldview, their mindsets. However, if they are living in a dysfunctional environment, in a dysfunctional environment, setting, those 11 years are going to be warped. Yes, they're going to be molded and shaped, but warped so that when they are young adults or they initiate their own relationships and end up in their own raising of a family, they won't know how to do it. Why? Because they are deep-rooted in the childhood traumas that they experienced. So you're either An adult listening right now that's thinking, I've been through that. I checked off three or four of the ACEs scores. I come from a dysfunctional home. I was was neglected. I was abused. I was beaten. I was bruised. I was forgotten. Or you may be thinking, well, my family did okay, but I have developed some anger issues in my home. We're talking about divorce. I'm too busy at work. I've neglected my family. Maybe you have started a new cycle. You came from a functional family, but now you're starting a new cycle. And this is a dysfunctional one. And you need to recalibrate. I would encourage you, as I wrap up this episode, I want to encourage you to really seek God's face, to get into His presence, And to ask him, search my heart, O God, and put my thoughts to the test. And show me, show me, God, if there is any iniquity within me. Father, help me define what it is so that we can defeat it. Father, show me, reveal it to me. Paint a picture in my mind and in my heart so that I may see what it is. Many of you, many of you who are coming from dysfunctional backgrounds, you're having a hard time letting go. 
you're having a hard time forgiving. I'm not saying that you should go and locate the person that beat and bruised you, that abused you, that raped you, that hurt you, that fondled you. I'm not saying that. I would never ask you to do that. What I'm saying is you need to forgive that person. You need to forgive that person. When I have a hard time letting go of something, when I have personally a hard time forgiving an offense towards me, I close my eyes and I take myself to that scene in the Bible. I recall watching The Passion of the Christ, that movie that was produced by Mel Gibson. I recall watching The Passion of the Christ. I recall Jesus carrying that cross to Calvary. I recall Jesus being beaten and bruised for our iniquities. I recall the scene where he is hammered into the cross. He is nailed his hands and feet into the cross. And he looks up into the heavens and he says those famous words. Those words that are filled with grace and compassion and love and mercy. He says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. My friend, forgive them for they didn't know what they were doing. Forgive them for they didn't know any better. Forgive them for they themselves were abused also. They didn't know any better. My friend, forgive them because the benefit is greater to you than it is to them. Forgiving those who hurt you, those who wronged you, those who abused you, removes the power they have over your life. And it lets you live the life that God has purposed for you. And all you have to do is forgive them. I hope this episode has shed some light on whatever situation you may be going through or a situation that you have been through. Maybe you know somebody. You know somebody who is going through a situation. Why don't you encourage them? Share this podcast with them that they may also come to know the truth and allow the truth to set them free. I hope that every episode that you listen to helps you gain traction on your journey to freedom. The Bible says, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one goes into the Father except through me. Accept him in your heart, receive him as Lord and Savior, and see your life shift. If you enjoyed today's episode, would you please take a few minutes to leave us a positive, uplifting comment? 
and rate this podcast. Give us a five-star rating, would you? And share this podcast. A lot of the, uh, the terms, the concepts that I have shared with you today will be in the show notes. So will my scheduling app in the event that you would like to schedule a session with me. All of my sessions are currently virtual. Uh, so it doesn't matter where you live, where you're at. We can always connect. So I'll leave that in the show notes. I'll also leave the, uh, the link to my Instagram if you want to send me a quick message. Instagram is the best way to do it. And also for more additional resources, why don't you subscribe to my YouTube channel? You'll find me under Milton L. Gonzalez. And there, there's a lot of material there, free material for you that uh, can truly shed more light on your situation, open up your mind, help you shift your mindset, and create a completely different destination for your life. I'll see you next week with a new episode. God bless you guys, and I love you in Christ.